0: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week, I sit down with author Linda Hirschman. During our conversation, Linda talks about the changes and opportunities for women in the American workplace over the past two generations, and the lives and careers of America's first two female Supreme Court justices, Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg who are the subjects of her new book, Sisters-in-Law. Well, Linda, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for for taking some time and uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My pleasure. So we're in San Francisco, and you're in town uh, to talk about a new book that you wrote. Uh, but before we talk about that, we'd, we'd love to learn about your your upbringing. Uh, I, I did a little bit of research uh, on, on you before uh, the interview. Am, am I right that you grew up in Cleveland, Ohio? Is I did. Right? Did you? Did you? Did. Okay. I grew up in Erie, Pennsylvania. Yeah, actually, I, so I, I, the, not...
1: your accent is very similar to mine. I agree. Right? I
0: agree. Uh, so you, I know part of the... Uh, my interest in, in talking to you is sort of talking about the history of, of the education of, of women in this country over the last 50 years or really even longer than that, um, I would love to to learn a little bit about it from from you, given uh, the credentials that that you have and the schooling, the extensive schooling that that you that you have now. Uh, take us back to what life was like for uh, <laughs> curious, ambitious women when you were in high school and in college. Well, paint the picture for what what the what the country was like at that time.
1: That's so. That's a great question. Of course, everybody thinks their own life story is so interesting, which it really isn't. But <laughs> but as a matter of social history. It's good to think about it. I was the beneficiary of many American institutions, the public schools, Mm -hmm. the public library. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to school um, in a public school, in a suburban public school. And I walked to school and school from the time I was little, was my haven and my Mm. wonderful place. And um, I had a public library was another block or two beyond my school. So I would go to school and then I would go to the library and every two days they let you take out five books. And so I would go to the library and take out five books. And there was a shelf of books in the library that um, were about... Biographies of accomplished women. Mm. And I was so fortunate that I had that in my library because I read them mm. and they inspired me, and that in turn inspired me to write this book. Mm. So my engagement with the process of accomplished women's lives, allowing young girls to aspire, goes all the way back to 1949 when mm. I started school. Mm.
0: Were you encouraged by your community and your family and your teachers at that time to to go in that direction, or could you tell that was something unusual?
1: So, I did not think I was at all unusual in 1957 when I was 13. I read "Advice and Consent," mm-hmm. and I decided I would become a United States senator. That sounded like such a cool thing to do from the book. It never occurred to me that the entire United States Senate was male oh. at that time. It Really, just, I was really fortunate looking back on it that nobody ever said to me, You can't do that. You're a girl. Mm -hmm. No one ever said that. I went to a very competitive high school. All they cared about was how smart you were. All the smart girls in my class went to Cornell. Mm -hmm. One of them is Ellen Bravo, who has been an activist in the feminist movement forever, and another one of them is a a very successful lawyer in the Justice Department. We have our 50th reunion uh, in June, and all of Andrew Hacker's protégés are getting together at the reunion. Mm. So the world, I had a weirdly protected experience of life for a female, in my time mm. until I got to law school. Mm. That was when the blow struck. Like the poet Siegfried Sassoon said, from my mother's womb I fell into the state. Mm. From Cornell I fell into the University of Chicago Law School. And that was the first time that I found out that it was not going to be. Easy and obvious.
0: And what what happened at the University of Chicago? What, what, what sort of things did you So there were only
1: seven women in my class of 150. This was a huge change mm-hmm. from Cornell, my mm-hmm. co public high school, my little grammar school. It was the first time I'd ever been a real minority. Mm-hmm. So, and you felt weird. And the boys, many of them, at the University of Chicago Law School in 1966 came from all male schools, okay? They came from... Yale and places that were all male at that time so uh, they treated women as lesser and so it came from the all male faculty it came from my classmates it was clear that I was an oddity and not a member of the community
0: was that noticeable in the way that their body language was around you, or actually the well, way they didn't that they want behave? to
1: have me in their study groups, and they didn't pay attention to my opinion about stuff until I started doing well at law school? If you do well, they pay attention to you. Martha Field, who's a professor at Harvard now, was a year ahead of me, and she was at the top of her class, and she got the first female Supreme Court clerkship mm-hmm. with Abe Fortas. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but you know. It's un it's unnerving to suddenly be an outsider. Hmm.
0: And during that time, you said in, when you were in, in high school and in, in college, it seemed like that intelligence was really, and performance was, was right. what was gauged in terms of uh, your success and the way you were viewed by your peers. Did that eventually also hold true at the University of Chicago Law School or not particularly?
1: I never really felt welcome there but after a while you figure out who the assholes are and you stay away from them um, there were some really good professors uh, Grant Gilmore and Harry Calvin who were warm and supportive people um, but you know the law firm there were two women at my law firm mm-hmm. of 60 it just never let up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um eventually i got to a law firm that had clients that really needed me they their clients needed me so badly that they didn't care if i was a male or female right right? so i represented them effectively and i won a bunch of victories for them and so that was the moment when it stopped but i'm from 1966 to 1976 10 long years Mm -hmm. in the wilderness Mm -hmm.
0: Before we start talking about your your career, I w- would love to learn about who the, the when you were when you were growing up in the books that you said that you would you would run from the public library about successful women. Who, who were those people? Were there uh, specific women in, of history that really truly resonated with you? And and if so, who were they? Were and what about their story resonated?
1: So there was Anne Carroll of Carrollton, who was the um, military strategist for USS Grant in the Civil War, and um, it was always kept a secret. And I thought that was so heroic because I've always been a liberal in the Civil War. The Union side was a just war. So I was so happy to learn that a woman had figured out his strategy. Um, And there were the obvious candidates, Clara Barton, Florence Nightingale, the the founders of modern nursing, Mm -hmm. which still saves more lives than most medical professions Mm -hmm. so I remember them and then at some point before I was in the 5th grade I encountered the suffragettes, Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucy Mm -hmm. Stone Mm -hmm. and the Grim K sisters and um, I was inspired directly by them Um, there was the woman who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, Julia Ward Howe. That is a song that I think should be our national anthem.
0: Hmm. I would love to learn a little bit more about Grant's strategist. So I don't think I've ever heard of this woman. What's her story, and and how how was it kept a secret? What did did she do in the Civil War exactly?
1: So um, the Carols of Maryland is a very famous Mm -hmm. family in Maryland, and she was one of them. And... Um, From this long distance, I may be fuzzy on the details, but what I remember is that she figured out and how she got to be associated with the War Department, I just don't remember. But she figured out that the flow of the Tennessee River was such that U.S. Grant could use it in his campaign in the West, which was so incredibly important in winning the Civil War. Mm -hmm. That was her... Insight mm. and um, there's now writing about her. you can mm-hmm. look her up um, uh, and about how they would never acknowledge that she was the um, strategist. We could have lost the Civil War. It was very the um, confederacy had much better strategists than the union, mm. so it made a
0: difference mm. fascinating, yeah. So to get back to the beginning of your career, and this is one of the, the links I wanted to make between you and Sandra Day O'Connor, which is someone that, that I researched personally a little bit. What was, after graduating from the University of Chicago Law School, what did your opportunities look like uh, upon graduation? What, okay, what sort so of?
1: I did not have the experience that she had mm-hmm. of not being able to get a job at all. Mm-hmm. It was 1969. It was not 1952. Right. Yeah. By 1969... Some of the big firms in the cosmopolitan cities like Chicago, where I was looking for work, were starting to take a woman or two into the firm. Mm-hmm. And I had made law review and had a very good record at mm-hmm. law school. So, you know, they, I got two job offers
0: mm-hmm.
1: and took one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were many firms that did not offer me a job. And over the ensuing years, when I started looking around for more interesting things to do, there were people who said to me, I cannot hire you. My partner will not have a woman in the firm, which is completely illegal. But it did happen, but not it wasn't a uniform experience. Mm -hmm. There was starting to be a crack. So you then had to get into that crack and again be an outsider and a weird object of scrutiny and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but it, unlike Sandra J. O'Connor, I do not think that if you'll just let me in, I'll be successful and you'll forget all about my being a woman. She, mm-hmm. you know, she said that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's true. And I don't have her iron constitution. Mm-hmm. So for a normal person, it wasn't all that much fun to be a stranger mm-hmm. in a strange land. But at least I had work.
0: right. This might be a good segue to get into her story and, and Ruth's story as well. So take us into the early 50s uh, and, and this book, Sisters in Law, that, that you just wrote. What did you learn about her character and also the opportunities that she faced when she came out of Stanford Law School in the, in the early 50s? Literally no law firm would hire her. Is, it, is that right. correct?
1: They should 100% rejection. Um, they would not hire you. They they would not hire my predecessors at the University of Chicago Law School five years before I got out. Uh, So she thought of herself as a natural participant in the world. And when she got a law degree, she thought of herself as entitled to practice law. Mm. So the messages from the law firms that she... Was an outsider and could not participate. She did not internalize those messages. Mm-hmm. She never did, neither one of them did. Mm-hmm. But it was very loud for her. Um, so she just kept strategizing and scratching around trying to figure out how she could get in. She had heard that a public, and it, here's what's so interesting she was a Republican to the last act that she did, resigning in 2005 and handing her seat to George W. Bush. She was a Republican. Nonetheless, like minorities since the Civil War, she found her first employment with government, (laughs) bad government, Republicans' bad government, gave Sandra J. O'Connor her first and only opportunity. She went to a public official who had once hired a woman and asked if she could work for him. And he said she could work for no money until he got another appropriation, and she agreed to do that. She always saw herself as entitled to practice law. She was not going to be a secretary.
0: Mm -hmm. The lack of opportunities there, right? I mean, she graduated, I believe, near the top of her class at Stanford. Uh, Legally speaking at that time, what was the legal justification for not providing opportunities from almost across the board, all-male law firms? Was the law on the side of men at that time, or were they knowingly breaking the law? This
1: was... uh, 12 years before the Civil Rights Act was passed. Mm -hmm. So it was completely legal what they did.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There
1: was no prohibition in a private employer refusing to hire on the grounds of sex. Mm. That was prohibited in the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That was 12 years after she got out of law school. Mm. So they were in their rights to do it. Mm. It's wasteful because she was really smart and hardworking and would have been a good practicing lawyer. Mm. But um, if they hadn't discriminated against her, she wouldn't have had her brilliant career. Right.
0: Right, so, and to begin the the story about Ruth Bader Ginsburg was she's I believe quite a bit younger than Sandra Day O'Connor at least at least by a, a decade or two. Uh, what was her story coming out of law school? Was it a different time and more opportunities, or just break as you mentioned the word cracks? Did the cracks start to break through? So probably?
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg is only two years younger than Sandra Day right? O'Connor, but you've hit on something very smart, which is it was when. Be, for, re- for personal reasons, she did not graduate until 1959. And so, seven years mm. m- rather than um, two years, which her age would have. Um, so, she is younger in social time, okay? So, between 1952 in Phoenix, Arizona, or San Francisco, California, where O'Connor was looking for work. In 1959, in New York City, the society was starting to stir. It wasn't the '60s, but Brown v. Board of Education, integrating the schools racially, had been had been decided in 1954. So the society was starting to crack.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when Ginsburg got out in 1959, she—I mean, she was first in her class at Columbia. She had two years at Harvard, Harvard Law Review. She was really an astonishingly good law student, and her professors really went to bat for her and tried to get her a clerkship on the Supreme Court of the United States, and then they tried to get her a clerkship on the Second Circuit because that's what students who graduate first in their class get. They could not get that for her, but they got her a clerkship with a federal district judge in New York, and then when she finished her clerkship, it's now 60, okay, some of the more progressive firms interviewed her and were willing to um, consider her. But at that point, she decided she wanted to go into academics. So she didn't take those jobs. But it's interesting that you would think of her as younger. She's really not chronologically much younger. But she socially came into the world of law in a, young, in a more recent paradigm, hmm.
0: And here we are decades later talking about both of them, both, I believe, the the, the two first Supreme, female Supreme Court justices in history. What was it about their path or their character or their personality that led them to be those two people, right? Obviously, the society changed to some degree where presidents would uh, consider appointing them to the Supreme Court. Right. But what was it about them specifically that you think made them uniquely positioned and qualified to be even considered for those positions?
1: So... They had things in common that lifted them above all the other possible women first and second. Mm -hmm. They had character traits that they shared. They never internalized the lesser opinion that the world had of them. They did not suffer from the Cinderella syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is really important. It's really important that they did not do that. They were not their own worst enemies. Um... When someone tried to press them to admit that they were inferior, they took offense, both of them. They were not like, oh, I'm just a man in skirts. They knew they were being insulted. Mm -hmm. When they took offense, they got revenge. If they couldn't get revenge immediately, they waited and took it cold. If they could never get revenge, they learned the lesson that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's mother-in-law taught her on her wedding night her mother, Ginsburg's mother-in-law, Mrs. Martin Ginsburg's mother, Mrs. Ginsburg, we'll call her, gave her daughter-in-law earplugs and said, sometimes it pays to be a little deaf. Those are the characteristics that they share, and you see them on every page of my book. That's, I, I mean, I have an imaginary bracelet that I wear, WWRBGD, right? What would Ruth Bader Ginsburg do? because O'Connor is now old and retired and somewhat less vividly in my mind. It really helps to do that, because when you do that, you say, should I take offense? Will it pay off for me now? Should I wait? Those characteristics, these two very different, socially very different individuals, share, and they are invaluable. In addition, they have characteristics that are different, Hmm. which also help them. Sandra Day O'Connor is charismatic and politically brilliant. She has a sixth sense for the people she's with. And she puts them at ease, and they adore her. Right, left, center, everybody, many people that I talk to, not everybody, but many people that I talked to were just smitten with Sandra Day O'Connor. If she wanted to charm you, she's the most charming person in the world. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is... a mind and a vet. She's stunningly brilliant and good at the job of being a uh, lawyer, a law professor, an appellate arguer, that very intellectual part of social change movements. She was fantastic at that. Mm. When A. Nair hired her to be the first head of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, he told me in an interview, he thought to himself, men laugh at the women's movement I want someone who will be taken seriously. that was a really important characteristic and you meet her you know immediately you have to take her seriously hmm.
0: is she more of a steely presence a more of a steely personality or does she also have some of that personality and charm that Sandra Day O'Connor had
1: she's a wonderful human being so if you read her letters you really get it and letters reveal people very much more than just being in their mm-hmm. presence. Mm-hmm. So if you read her letters, you get a sense of an empathetic, loving, sensible, wonderful person. Um, Sandra J. O'Connor is a extraordinarily refined, polite, they say she'll write a thank you note to a thank you note, um, a very socially skilled person. So... It's a different set of skills, Um, but one of the things I learned from the letters that Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote to her favorite client, Stephen Weisenfeld, is what a really nice person she was.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Their nominations and subsequent appointment to the Supreme Court were both an act of a change in culture to a degree, but it was also an act of change in power. These positions hold enormous power in the country. What, in in your mind, for, for both of them, are there are there certain decisions uh, that they made during the course through, perhaps decisions that are not well known by the public that you regard as being particularly uh, impactful or influential in in the country at large?
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg's impact on American history comes as much from the tenure she spent at the ACLU. Mm-hmm as from her tenure on the court mm-hmm. because she has never been the swing justice right? Uh, as O'Connor was and Powell before O'Connor and Kennedy after O'Connor. Um, you, have to, you have to widen your lens and look at Ginsburg's tenures at the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Jeff Stone, the former dean of the University of Chicago Law School and one of my sources for the book and somebody who came there after the bad old days— um, s- said that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was quite simply the most important woman lawyer in the history of the American Republic. Mm-hmm. That appellation comes from her work at the ACLU mm-hmm. as much as on the court. Mm-hmm. O'Connor provided the swing vote three months after she came on the court in a case called Hogan v. Mississippi, which raised the question of whether public institutions of higher learning could be sex-segregated. Well, that line of cases go, goes back to Hogan. She was the swing vote to take review, and she was the swing vote in the decision. Mm-hmm. To the Virginia Military Institute case 14 years later, which sealed it. If mm-hmm. the VMI can't stay all mail, nobody could stay all mail. But that machine was set in motion by Sandra J. O'Connor in 1982, a very courageous uh, vote mm-hmm. in 1981, right after she came. Mm-hmm. So that, I would credit her with that. She was one of the troika that saved Roe v. Wade in 1992 in a case called Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Um, if any one of those three had gone the other way, then the case would have been five to four to strike down Roe v. Wade. So that's an important decision. However, the standard that the court uses for restrictions on abortion is so permissive of anti-abortion laws I'm not sure we wouldn't have been better off with them just overtly reversing it and let the populace see what it was like to go back to the bad old days so I don't know that Casey versus Planned Parenthood is as miraculous an event as it was treated as being at the time Mm -hmm. but she did play a role in that, she was one of the crucial folks in that as well the other influence that they have which is less visible is that they participate in the conversation in oral argument. They bring, as Sonia Sotomayor said, the richness of their experience mm-hmm. to the argument, and that I think makes a tremendous difference. I listen to those arguments because mm-hmm. they're available on the computer. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court makes the tra- uh, oral recordings of the arguments available all the way back to Reed v. Reed. Mm-hmm. So I've listened to all of them, and you hear them shaping the conversation. And you know that their male brethren cannot act out as much as they would do if these women weren't there, mm. and so it it has an effect on the discourse. Mm. Mm.
0: You talk about the, their their resolve, uh, it, their grit, almost as 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 women who who elevate to that that level of a position within the legal community. Uh, what, what was their um, uh, the process by which they were actually? Uh, Voted in by by the Senate and, and let let into the court were they in your uh, research for the book were, were they overtly discriminated against by certain senators what what was the the process for uh, for for each of them in, in actually being authorized to, to become part of the Supreme court
1: there's nothing in the transcript of their confirmation hearings that is overtly sexist mm. interestingly mm. Um, O'Connor was a Republican. And presented to the Senate by a legendary conservative, President Ronald Reagan, she was a great favorite of Barry Goldwater, Mm -hmm. the hero of the Republican conservative movement. Mm -hmm. And there was resistance to O'Connor from the anti-abortion people in Arizona Mm -hmm. who correctly anticipated that she would ultimately not vote to reverse Roe v. Wade. And when they opposed her, Barry Goldwater said that anyone who didn't support Sandra Day O'Connor should be spanked. So it would be hard to see where that kind of behavior would come from. It was also 1982, and some of the worst of them, Emanuel Seller and Howard K. Smith and stuff, were gone. So there's that. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg... The transcript of her hearings are also very respectful. I rather doubt that a stalwart of the ACLU would get as polite a treatment now as she did. Uh, Orrin Hatch, who was a good man, was the was the spokesman for the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee at that time, and um, you know he was really good friends with Edward Kennedy, and he. People from Marty Ginsburg, Ruth's husband, had law partners who had dealt with Orrin Hatch, and they went to Hatch on Ruth's behalf before the process was finished. Mm -hmm. So she had an ally in an unexpected place as well. And the process has gotten much more contentious since
0: 1987. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Looking back now, with the with the book done, and obviously you're you're traveling to, to promote it. Are there particular facts or information that you learned from the book? And I'm sure many of the things that you discovered you found interesting, but uh, a, a few of them that come to mind that really stick out in your mind as being particularly telling about them as people or just information that you learned along the way about either of their stories that you really want people to know about?
1: So I, I would say that I really want people to know that Sandra Day O'Connor played a very important role in the achievement of legal equality for women. Um, I I know that if there had been an Internet when she was still active before Bush v. Gore, which cost her a lot of support, that they might have made a Tumblr page about her Mm -hmm. because... From 1981 to 1993, when she sat alone Mm -hmm. on the court, many of the most important decisions establishing women's equality were decided in those years. Mm -hmm. She was the swing vote in Hogan, and I believe her presence and the handful of opinions that Justice Berger let her write made the world a better place for women. Mm-hmm. The sexual harassment as a violation of the Civil Rights Act was voted on when O'Connor sat alone on the Supreme Court. That's hugely important. Roe v. Wade was not overturned when O'Connor sat alone on the Supreme Court. Hugely important. Mm-hmm. So I, I think Hogan versus Mississippi, which I've talked about, I think it's important for us, as Ruth has done, absolutely, uh, to recognize the pioneer. Mm-hmm. The thing I love about Ginsburg is that you see her, this very small woman, in a little soft voice, stand on the lever of the 14th Amendment and move the world. And she did it because she was so smart and so strategic about presenting cases that would be the least obnoxious fact pattern first, and then moving a little bigger, and then a little bigger still, until by the end of her tenure as the head of the Women's Rights Project of the ACLU, she had tied the Supreme Court up with fine threads of precedent, and they were trapped. And one of the things that I discovered, which nobody has written about until this book, is in the Powell Papers, there are memos back and forth between Powell and Stevens and mm. saying, God, we really do not want to give Ruth Bader Ginsburg her victory in this really expensive, you know, really redistributive case, but we're trapped
0: mm-hmm.
1: by the prior decisions. So she was a really good law student and she put those skills to work in managing the order of business in that critical ten years. Mm. So I would say those are the two most interesting things hmm. that I discovered from the standpoint of American experiment, the American undertaking. I know a bunch of other cool things. but hmm.
0: it, Now we, we look at young women that are graduating from, from college or law school or medical school, and it, it seems like the opportunities have just exploded for, for women, in, in this country at least. Um, do you attribute that to... A lot of the the legal work that the two of them have done to result in the sort of society that we live in now.
1: Yeah, I think when the Fourteenth Amendment says you have to treat men and women the same, mm-hmm. that it makes a, it it legitimates the claim, and after a while, it's not laughable anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think it made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I was out of law school and practicing law for two years before Ruth Bader Ginsburg got the Supreme Court to say you could not discriminate that. Prob, uh, The government, which is governed by the 14th Amendment, could not discriminate against women. Mm -hmm. It legitimated our aspirations. I think that's hugely important. And Sandra Day O'Connor was a role model so that she showed all of us that we could aspire to the highest position in the land, in the legal profession anyway. Um, The issues that women are confronting now, Ginsburg's writings and speeches reflect as... Long ago was 1970 and 71. Okay, so 45 years ago, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was writing about the cost of childbearing, the cost of child rearing, the way in which, if men did not take their role in the private family, in the um, family labor, then women would not be able to labor in the marketplace. She was writing about that that long ago. Those problems still plague women who are mm-hmm. trying to get out mm-hmm. into the world. Uh, and the inequality. The more, the the more since 1973, America has become increasingly unequal. The more unequal society is, the harder it falls on women. Women pr- pr- progressed in the feminist movement came from the great flattening. So women progress when everybody's survival is not at stake all the time, mm-hmm. and you don't have to be at Goldman Sachs or on the street. Okay, so the more unequal it is, the harder it is for women to rise. Mm-hmm. So it's gotten worse in that regard. On the other hand, last night I was doing a book talk at Changing Hands Bookstore in my hometown, of Phoenix, Arizona, mm-hmm. and as I was signing books, three young women came up to me. Two of them were clerking for Mary Schroeder, on the a judge on the Ninth Circuit. And one of them was clerking for a district judge and was about to go to Judge Barcala on the Ninth Circuit. Three young women, bang, 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 mm-hmm. sign our books. It was a moment for me, who had felt like a stranger in a strange land, when I was their age. Absolutely. So I, I am heartened by that.
0: Hmm. Last question I want to ask you, and it, it is, you touched on this a, a little bit. It, we've, it does seem like the society has, has come a long way in terms of um, at least legally giving women opportunities in in the private sector and, and just in their careers generally what what else needs to be done in your view to to really equal the equal the playing field if you had to tick off a few things that you think the the country as a whole could do to um, continue to head in that direction what what would you what would you recommend
1: We have to redistribute the burden of child rearing there was a publicly funded child care law passed by the Congress and vetoed by Richard Nixon in 1971. That was a critical loss and has resonated ever since. We need to redistribute the burden of childbearing. I don't care whether we redistribute it collectively from women collectively onto the United States government or the state governments and therefore onto the whole population. That's the redistribution. Or whether individual women redistribute it to the men that they're reproducing with. Mm -hmm. Okay? I don't actually care. Mm -hmm. But one way, privately or publicly, that's the hardest problem. The second problem is the speed up in the workplace. So uh, people are unable to have flourishing lives. And that always, women who bear the majority of the uh, domestic labor, it falls harder on them mm-hmm. to keep their themselves afloat. That's the second problem. There's no question in my mind that that has been enormously harmful to women. Um, the third problem is something that not enough people are talking about, and that is the, the ramping up of the job of motherhood. Okay. I watched it happen. I walked from my house to my grammar school. I was six. Mm-hmm. And from there to the library. And in the winter, I carried my skates and from there to the skating pond and then home. My mother did not walk, drive me to school. Mm-hmm. This whole business of making your own baby food and nursing until the kid is bar mitzvahed and read taking your lemon rinds to be composted to the, okay, this whole ramping up of domestic labor falls right on the shoulders of women.
0: Mm.
1: So I call it dust bunnies under the bed. Mm.
0: Mm. Well, Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for your work on on this new book. I really appreciate the, uh, the time and, and talking to us, and uh, thanks again so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com. showcom